Thank, Thank you, Jimmy. And good, good morning. morning. My name is Al Garner, and I am a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Uh, seemed like a very good idea at the time, up until about an hour ago, and it always, <laughs> always seems to... To get rearranged there a little bit, but I'll, I'll get with it in a second. I want to thank the, uh, the committee for having Gay and I uh, here this weekend. Thank each and every one of you uh, for being here and making this weekend possible for us because it's been a real treat. Um, the, uh, I love your clubhouse. Uh, I, I love the people that are in it because that's what makes We walked in and we felt warm. We felt welcome. And it was good to be back and, uh, and, and meet some old friends and make some new ones. And it's, it's been a great weekend for both of us. And... Uh, it was great to share with Brookings and, uh, and Sarah Jane and, and be with them again because we see them often. And uh, it, it, it's neat. Gay and I were talking about it the other night, even though we know them and have known them for a long time, to hear the changes that take place in our lives when we listen to each other talk, the differences that, and things that have happened. Um, and, and Brookings, thank you very much for Friday night. You certainly got things started off well. And Sir Jane, as, as usual, I loved it, and Gay even said a few things that I identified with on Saturday night. And, uh, and, uh, Jack was talking about, I may not have found it necessary to, to, to aim a gun or shoot Gay, but I want to explain to you that that gun that she was using was mine. <laughs> I had left it uh, in a conspicuous place and she was able to, to find it. I'd even given her instructions on how to operate it, which I don't think maybe was too wise at the time, but uh, that was the case and by the grace of God. And she did not find it necessary to use it, and, uh, nor have I. And, uh, and that's, I think, a large part to do with these two programs that we share of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Jock, the... Uh, the, uh, the Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, and all the entertainers who were involved in that, in that wonderful skit that you put together was great. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and we'll take something away from here because of it. It just, just was super. You did a great job putting it together. And the actors, I thought the scripts were written, and it was, uh, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, it just, just was absolutely super. It's been a perfect weekend. Uh, I had thoughts of... Talking to Sarah Jane when we got here and seeing we couldn't trade places because I wanted to get this over with quickly, but it's not oftentimes, it's the most difficult, one of the most difficult things that I do. I have been in the broadcast business all my life, and uh, people would tell me when I began to talk, it shouldn't be too difficult for you, but it is, because I have to get up and talk about me, and that's the most difficult thing in the world to do, and to share for me, for this Al-Anon. Uh, the, Garner the Garner family that we have, that we have is, um, is a shining example of alcoholism as a family disease. Uh, as Gay told you in her talk last night, um, we are, there are five members in our immediate family. Four out of the five are dealing with recovery now, and we think hopefully that, that one of them, the fifth one, is on the way because we thought she had escaped for such a very, very long time. Uh, we thought, and I used to say when I was talking, we don't know how she got into our family because she does naturally the things that we come to these meetings and sit in these rooms and learn to do. She does them naturally. She takes care of herself. And uh, we thought really that she had escaped. But we know now that she has not. We know now, too, and I believe more firmly than I have ever believed in my life that none of us escape this disease of alcoholism when we are exposed to it and live in it. Um, I came, I came from, from a family of, of, um, of alcoholics. alcoholics. Uh, my, my grandfather died as a direct result of alcoholism. Two of the uncles on my father's side died as a direct result of alcoholism. One on my mother's side and another that uh, 
I don't know how he's still living. When I think in retrospect about our family and about the things in our family, we didn't have any social drinkers. We didn't know what social drinkers were. We were either teetotalers or we, uh, we were drunks. And there was no in-between. We didn't know what the word social drinking meant. Uh, we didn't know what it was. When, uh, and it was interesting for me when I was coming up as a child to, to look back and, and remember that these, these people were the, were the favorite people in my life, these people that, that were the alcoholics and these people that, that drank. Uh, I was attracted to them. We were sitting in a meeting not too long ago when somebody said, we were talking about after the meeting, uh, about, about some situations, and this person came up with a classic line of, I wonder what the hell I've done to attract all these alcoholics in my life. And we, and we realized and talked about it, it's not us, it's not them that's attracted in our life, it's us that's attracted to them. And uh, that continues to be the situation with me today. Um, I was attracted, I, I, I naturally uh, hung out with these people and thought they were the fun people uh, in my life, and they were my favorites. Um, I, was I was born in a uh, little town in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, on the uh, east coast of, uh, of North Carolina. And uh, when I was three years old, my mom and dad uh, separated. I, I was a, uh, the second child. The first one died before I was born. And I was the second child. And I can remember uh, a little of the early childhood, but being three, a little over three years old, I can remember very, um, very well the night that this emotional upheaval happened. And, uh, and uh, I sat, uh, was sat in the middle of the bed uh, in the back bedroom while my dad was packing the stuff in his truck and going out the back door and mother screaming and yelling, you see your dad's going to leave us. And, uh, and he did. And uh, I went to live with mother. And uh, I can remember... In my, in my early childhood, mother's tremendous concern that I wouldn't turn out to be quite the, uh, the person I should turn out to be because I didn't have a father. I lived with mother. I had no relationship really with my dad. I heard about my dad. Mother, mother was, was one that constantly reminded me that what my, our father had done to us and how he had left us. And... Um, and I, I came into this program with an awful lot of resentments um, and intense dislikes from my mother and the things that she accomplished. And, and thank God through the, the tools provided us in this program and the steps in al and I've been able to, to sit down with her uh, and to get rid of those things because I know she did the very best that she could with what she had. And I love her very much and have a relationship with her. Um, and, and have one with my dad that I'll tell you about later on because of these programs. But the early childhood was, um, was um, my mother was a very strict disciplinarian. Um, we won't call it abuse, but it damn sure borders on it sometimes, I'll tell you. Um, we, we were born and, and lived in a little mill town, and not too long after I was, uh, uh, can remember mom remarried. And this time she married a real full-blown practicing alcoholic and it was my first encounter with with an alcoholic and he was one of the the violent type that loved to come home and, and chase people around the house and uh, and create all sorts of problems he didn't last very long around the house but he, and he was gone um, and I once again was left with uh, just mother and I and her concern and my concern about not turning out too well 
And I began to feel that, that, that I was a little different than some of the other guys, not because so much I didn't have one of the parents, but I just felt different. I don't know what it was. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like that I was uh, the, the odd cog in the wheel. Um, felt like that wherever I was, I, I didn't belong there. And I'd like to be somebody somewhere else and be somebody else, but I didn't know what it was or who it was. I just didn't feel like I belonged. After going through school, Mom found and, and, and married the third time. And during this period of time, I didn't, I didn't have any relationship with my dad. I didn't see my dad. Um, not because of, of, of his uh, choice, a lot of it because of, of mothers, the situations, and, and he lived away, so we didn't, we didn't have a relationship, didn't know him. Heard about him, saw him a couple of times, but didn't know him. Mother was remarried for the third time and, and still is married to this, this gentleman, and we moved off to Virginia. And I really felt displaced when we got into Virginia. Um, I felt like I didn't belong, and very strong, during this period of time, a very strong desire to please people began to rule my life. Uh, I began to, to try to, to find out what you'd like for me to be, and how you'd like for me to be, and how you'd like for me to react, and I'd do my darndest to do and to be that person. Brookings said something about the other night, Friday night, about completing school in 11, day, 11 years. Uh, when I transferred up to Virginia, they had an 11-grade school system, and they had uh, changed that to a 12-grade school system, so I was moved up uh, a grade. Um, lying became a part of my life because, you see, I'd create all sorts of lies and situations. And I used to, that was one, it triggered something the other night when Brooke said that. I used to run around and tell people just how intelligent I was because I had graduated high school in 11 years. Truth was that uh, I was, they didn't have but 11 years now. That's the only reason that I graduated high school 11 years. Um, in an effort to belong, I joined the teams. I played sports. I played football, basketball, and all those things. was captain of the baseball team. And it's amazing, in all those team sports that I played, I just never felt a part of it. I just never felt like I was one with them. It was, it was me and the other eight guys that played baseball. Uh, I just, just didn't feel like I belonged there. Uh, uh, when I uh, graduated from high school, the, uh, they gave us an award, as, they gave me an award as the most outstanding athlete in high school. And I can remember sitting on the stage that night thinking about, you know, I can think of about eight or nine other guys that are more deserving of this award than I am. Uh, and, and the hilarious thing was they also gave me the award as most likely to succeed. And I still didn't feel a part of it. I felt like that wherever I was was by mistake. And, and, and I shouldn't be there. And uh, uh, it was religion to us in, in my early childhood. We lived right across the street from the church. Let me tell you that, the Methodist church in, in this little town in Virginia. And when the doors opened, we were in it. Uh, I was very, very active in the Methodist Youth Fellowship. Um, and when I graduated from high school, I realized now that it had probably been decided for me that I was going to become a minister. And those of you that know me a little better realize the, uh, how funny that idea is, that I become a minister. But it was decided. My mother, my mother thought it was a great idea. My grandmother was a Pentecostal holiness, and they all had decided that uh, dear Al should go off to, uh, to uh, college and become a minister. Uh, 
And I was so deeply seated into people-pleasing, if all you got to do is give me a suggestion, see, and that sounds fine to me. And when they suggested that I should be a minister, I said, fine, let's do it. And I accepted a scholarship, went off to Ferrum Junior College, and went into consultation with a minister for a week that they send all of us prospective ministers and missionaries to spend time with. And I had a real problem with all of the young guys talking about their call to the ministry. Um, I couldn't identify a call to the ministry, and I told this minister that. And he said to me, maybe, maybe what you need to do, Al, is try to walk away from it. And maybe, maybe if you're drawn back to it, maybe that's your call to the ministry. And so that's what I tried to do. I went back home, and I got on my knees, and I prayed. We, I slept in an upstairs bedroom, and I used to always raise the shade so I could see the lightning or the, the, the answer or the light or something or whatever it was in answer to the, to the prayer that I was. And, but for some reason, I never got it. And so I took that to mean that, that I was not to be a minister and went off to, uh, to military school. I had probably the most successful period of my life up to this point in those two years of military school. Because if, if you have a personality like I do and you're looking for who you'd like to be or who you think you should be, going to military school will lay all that out for you. And they gave me some very explicit instructions and guidelines to live life by, and I made out very, very well in military school. Graduated cadet CO. Um, and uh, with all the honors and uh, just made straight A's and was doing very, very well because I didn't have to think. See, I knew that if I went from point A to point B, that's what you expected of me and that's all I had to do and, and that's what I did. And I did it by the numbers. Uh, problem was, when I got out of military school, I had the same problems again. I, I was thrown back into uh, having to live life on life's terms and, and not knowing what I, I should be and, and, and still feeling like I didn't belong, feeling like an odd, I, I, I don't know what it was, but it was something going on inside of me that just was never right, and I just never felt comfortable with myself. And everywhere I ended up, I felt like I ended up by mistake, and, and that I shouldn't be there. I had room with a young fellow at military school, and he went off to Wake Forest College, and that was a, uh, it's a fine university up in North Carolina. At the time, it was a college, and it was controlled by the Southern Baptist Convention, and we decided to room together when I transferred up the next year, and, uh, boy, we went into Wake Forest College, and you've got to realize that up to this point that God and I, the last couple of years in my life, then had separated ways because of this, this lack of a sign, this lack of an answer when I had prayed and asked for it. So we got there, and Wake Forest College, being controlled by the Southern Baptist, was a very religious school. You don't dance on campus. You don't hold hands. You don't do any of those things back in those days. We were the class that made the centerfold of Life magazine uh, at the end of our first year there because we, uh, we had disrupted the campus and took over and danced on campus. Um, we did some things that we're not very proud of at that school. They would have religious emphasis week, and we'd have sin emphasis week to immediately follow. <laughs> We threw weather balloons and banners from the top of the place. Uh, we just we disrupted the school. Uh, we had penny raids and uh, uh, and all those things that that college people do, but you don't do them at Wake Forest College. We even had, I think, probably our class was responsible for the for the uh, the change in plans of the chapel at the University of Oklahoma because the president came down to see our wonderful Wake Chapel, and it's a gorgeous place if you're ever up there to see it. It's got a big domed ceiling. And the Pope 
who was the chaplain there at Wake Forest, would get up every morning and cut, up, cut on the amplifier underneath the podium to, uh, to begin services. Now, we had to go to these chapel services. We were given cuts in these chapel services, just like you were a class. The entire student body went to them. And uh, we figured out, uh, I had begun to work in the college radio station at the time. We figured out that we could get into the sound system of that, that auditorium, and we did. And uh, he got up that morning with the auditorium full of people and flipped on the switch and sat back down in his large crimson chair, and out of all of the speakers came Rosemary Clooney, and I could have danced all night. <laughs> the, the, the president of the University of Oklahoma was speaking to the student body, and he got up and began to address the student body, and out of one of these recessed lights in this beautiful dome cathedral ceiling came a lady's brazier on a string, and it sprung across the audience and went back up in the top. And these were the type of things that, that our, our, uh, our class was responsible for at the, at the College of Wake Forest. Uh, I'm sure the president of Oklahoma went back and did not put recessed lights and walk tracks over the dome there at the University of Oklahoma. And he probably secured the sound system so you couldn't crawl through the little hole in the front and get, get to it in the projection booth. But a lot of things you were not very proud of. Um, I began, I also fell into, um, with a group of mental giants there at Wake Forest who were studying philosophy and realized that, that God was for the, for the weak and the emotionally unstable. And that's kind of who we were. So we had a, we had a big time. My roommate uh, in college, uh, Bob, uh, began to date a, uh, a gal that came, um, came from Wake Forest, uh, Winston-Salem, who lived there, her family did. And so I started going over at the house with him, and uh, I met uh, Bob's fiancée, and we used to hang around a lot together, and uh, we went everywhere together. We were kind of like three musketeers. We hung out at the Rascala, we drank beer, and we just, we just had a big time. And uh, we were in college theater, and uh, we were all part of this rebel group that stayed constantly in trouble with school and just above failing. Um, and one weekend, Bob said to me, I wish if you would do me a favor, I, I'm, I'm going to go over to uh, North Carolina and try out for the Lost Colony, and uh, I'm going to be gone for the weekend, and I wonder if you will entertain my fiance for the weekend and see that she has uh, some activities and maybe take her dancing or something, you know, buy her a drink, go to the rest gallery. And I said, fine, I'll take care of Gay, no problem. <laughs> um, so Bob went off to, to uh, try out for the Lost Colony, and uh, there was a wonderful club over in Greensboro, North Carolina, that, that served uh, uh, booze. It was a private club. And we went to it, and Common Cavalero, those of my age group will remember Common Cavalero, was a wonderful dance band and a piano player, and we danced and, and, and had a big time on Saturday night. And Bob came back on Sunday, and we had a little conversation, and Bob lost the fiancé, and I lost a roommate because he moved out. Um, and Gay and I began to date, and... And it was, a, it was a different sensation for me because I was introduced into a, into a family unit, uh, a gay's family of a mother and father that I just had no, uh, uh, no concept of before. They were close. They were brothers and sisters. There was a mother and a father, and they all cared and loved and touched and hugged and did those things. And I was uncomfortable with that. Uh, but gay and I had a lot of fun. As Gay told you earlier, she became pregnant, and uh, it became a very horrendous time in our life uh, to tell our parents and go through what we went through, and they shuffled us off to North Florida 
and then told stories about the premature birth of, of our first daughter so that everybody wouldn't know. We lived in, uh, in North Florida, and this was kind of interesting because up until this time, a couple of things that I forgot to tell you, that when I graduated from military school with all these honors, my dad showed up, and he came to my, my graduation. And uh, I'd, I had corresponded with him, but had no relationship with him whatsoever, and told me that, that if I wanted to go ahead and further my education, that he'd send me to the University of Miami and, uh, and pay for it. And I could live with him. He owned a motel down in Florida. And uh, I, I told him that uh, I'd gotten this far in life without him, and I really didn't need his help. I had a scholarship to go to Wake Forest. Thank you very much. Thank God he was a little bigger person than I because uh, he said, if that's what you want to do, then I'll help you do that. So he helped me with Wake Forest. When, and we established a relationship, and I went to stay with him in Florida for the summer between uh, college uh, semesters. And I got to know him a little bit. Not a real strong relationship, but I certainly got to know him. And when Gay and I were married, I was down in Florida. Dad came up and was my best man uh, at our wedding. And Dad and I began to build a relationship that we hadn't had before. And then when Gay and I uh, were married, we moved off to North Florida, and we lived in this little North Florida town where my parents lived, where my dad lived. And um, it, it was a very difficult time. Uh, we, should, we, should, uh, we should never have moved there, and it was, it was, un, it was an unhappy time, and the marriage was a disaster. Uh, it was uh, because, you see, two sick people do not make a well marriage, and we were two sick people working on, a, uh, on an impossible situation. And it, and it almost killed us. In reasonably short order, we were, born, we were uh, delivered two other daughters. We had three daughters. As a matter of fact, it was, it was thought that for a long time that we didn't know how to make boys on this side of the, the Garner household and because they all were girls, but they were wonderful girls. And they, as Gay said last night, were never really blaming boys themselves for any, anything that happened with us. Um, Gay's and my relationship was never good from the beginning because it was not founded on any principles. It was not founded on any communication and honesty. Uh, it was one of convenience that was arranged for us, and that's the way it was. We moved around quite a bit, and I, you know, I, I got to this program when I got here carrying an awful lot of guilt about this, and I forget to talk about it sometime, because I moved and pulled my family around the country in the radio business. Um, for a long time, and a lot of the problems that the kids started to have, I, I, I accepted the responsibility for that because I thought maybe had I left them in the school, maybe they had, they had not moved from Maryland or Tennessee or Texas or South Georgia or to Atlanta, maybe these things wouldn't have happened to them. But I know that's not legitimate today. I know that through the process of the steps and the inventories that I've been able to take, that's something that that I do not have to accept the responsibility for. And if being given an opportunity, by the grace of God in this program, to maybe do some things that, to me, uh, help and with, with, with kids because I've been able to become an Alteen sponsor in Al-Anon and spend some time with some kids and put some quality time into some children that I really didn't have when my kids grew up because I wasn't there. I traveled around quite a bit. So that's really been a, a blessing for me, um, to, the, these Al-Anons. I told you one, one thing I, I forgot to tell you. When I graduated from college, I'd been working at the college radio station. And I told you I ended up uh, feeling that I, everywhere I ended up, I was there by mistake. Well, this was not without reason sometimes. 
I went up to the radio station to wait for a friend of mine who was an announcer to get off and was sitting there waiting in, in the lobby to go have a couple of beers with him. And this little guy came running through the lobby and he said, are you here about the job? And I said, sure. <laughs> and, and he said, come on and follow me. And you always get crazy people around radio stations. And I followed this guy in and it turned out he was the president of Winston-Salem Broadcasting Company. And he said, we're looking for a weekend announcer here at the radio station. Do you have any experience? And I said, sure, I work at the college radio station. And he said, are you any good? And I said, I'm the best thing they've got out there. <laughs> and and uh, he said, well, when are you doing your show? And I said, tonight. He said, I'll listen to you and, and, and give me a call back tomorrow. And, and I was so scared that night when I went out to do my show, I paid the engineer $10 to run the controls because my hands were shaking too much, and I couldn't run them. I was scared to death. But I got through the show and called him the next morning, and he said, you're not as good as you think you are, but you're good enough to, to work weekends, and gave me a job at TOB. So you see, the, the, the livelihood that I earned for many years in the broadcast business, I felt I was there by mistake. I really wasn't, uh, wasn't meant to be. I, I didn't, didn't know too much about divine intervention and those things in those days, and believed more in coincidences and mistakes than I do today. Um, when we went to North Florida, one of the things that I looked for was a job in the radio business and found one. And uh, so I stayed in the radio business for a while. We moved around um, and ended up um, in Texas after moving a couple of times in, in Florida. And we didn't have drinking problems, but I'll tell you this, we certainly gravitated to the people who drank a lot. Our friends and our neighbors were people that uh, that were party goers and would stay up all night and drink all night with us. Um, and and I, I, here I am, I, in, inside I'm feeling that, that here I am in a marriage that, that was arranged for us in a job that I don't know how the hell I got into, uh, living a life that I don't know what is going to happen and I'm certainly here by mistake. I don't want to be here but I don't know where I want to be. And in the fear to get up in the morning and go to work, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. We talk about these feelings inside, and, and a couple of people have said from the podium this weekend that these feelings, once we get rid of alcohol, when we're talking Al-Anons and AAs, are the same. And I, su I suffered the same anxieties and the fears and a lot of the things. And it got me later into trouble in this program because I, I, uh, I identified in the wrong way, which I'll tell you about in a bit. But we ended up in, in, uh, in Texas, and there I met an entertainer who told me that, uh, that he was going to go buy a bunch of radio stations, and he wanted me to come run them for him. Here we go by mistake again, because I don't know anything about running radio stations. But in about six months, he called me, and he would bought his first radio station, and we went to work for him, running his radio stations. And we built one in Tennessee, and one in Georgia, and one in uh, Maryland. And... Uh, we again pulled the kids up by the bootstraps and we moved from Texas to Knoxville, Tennessee, to Augusta, Georgia, to Baltimore, Maryland, all in a period of about two years, two and a half years, setting up these radio stations. As we began to move around, you know, I don't remember an awful lot of, of problems with alcohol. I don't remember gays drinking with alcohol because I wasn't there. Uh, when we moved around, to, when we got into Baltimore, I do know this, I began to notice that Gay was having personality changes when she drank alcohol. Um, she always seemed to have to have a drink in her hand, um, and usually two or three before she could begin to talk, and we could talk about anything. But alcoholism never occurred to me 
it, it was a problem. I mean, this was the way that, that we lived. These were the way our, our, we didn't drink as much as a lot of our friends do. So alcoholism and, and the use of alcohol was not a problem, I didn't think, because I was never around to know anything about it. The, the job with the entertainer was, uh, as Gay alluded to last night, was less than reputable. Uh, there are a lot of things that we did that, that uh, goes along with the business you hear about, I guess. But um, we, became, uh, we became friends with uh, the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, knew where we lived. Um, there, were, there were just a lot of problems. And, uh, and I was in, in a place getting sicker every day in a job that I really didn't think that I belonged in, in a marriage that had been arranged for us with the responsibilities of a family that, that I didn't have enough responsibility about me to take care of myself and make responsible decisions. Uh, it, was a, it was a disaster when I'd come home on the weekends. Uh, we did not very little communicating. Uh, we did shut down. Uh, but alcohol never was a, was a real problem. And, and Gay, Gay ran, ran to her family, and she became a real mother's girl. She became a daddy's girl. She spent a lot of time in Fort Lauderdale with her family, and her family spent a lot of time with us, and I loved them very much. But, but I was resentful underneath all of this for the relationship that she had with them, and I didn't know how to handle it. Um, so it was not a very happy time. And uh, in spite of ourselves, um, we worked through some things and stayed together, and, and by the grace of God, our are together for some 33 years. When we ended up in, in Baltimore, things began to get worse with me on the job. Uh, things began to get worse if it was possible with our relationship. And, and the people pleasing in my life was so very, very strong. You know, back in the early days when I played baseball in high school, I used to, uh, I went down and when I was in Florida uh, for, the, for the summer, I played you know, in a semi-pro league down there, and there was a fellow got up, first game I pitched, um, I threw him a second or third pitch and hit it over the center field fence. Pietra came out and said, don't worry about it, this guy's a good ball player and he used to play for the Cleveland Indians. So when people began, would ask me about my sports prowess, I would tell them I used to play with the Cleveland Indians. Um, you see, lying was a very much a part of my life. Uh, I'd lie to you about anything. I'd create, try to create whatever I thought you wanted me to create and try to be whoever I thought you wanted me to be. People-pleasing was, uh, was ruling my life. I can remember one, one instance of, of traveling and, and with this entertainer, we, we, got, we got out of the radio business really and, and I, his manager died and I ended up managing him. And uh, it, I told you about the things that went on with the Internal Revenue Service and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and you got paid sometimes and we didn't. We got big bonuses sometimes and sometimes we didn't. We traveled uh, six months out of the year over in Europe the last four or five years. Uh, it was just an impossible bad job. It was so bad that I only stayed there for 14 years. <laughs> and, 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 uh, but, you know, I didn't, ha I didn't know how to get out of it. I drive to work on Monday mornings into the office thinking this is it. I am not going to be in this job anymore and I'm going to give it up and I'm going to go home and I'm going to try to be a normal person. 
And I drove to work the next Monday morning saying the same thing, and the next Monday morning saying the same things, because, you know, I didn't know how to get out of it. And, and there was another thing underneath that kept saying, if you get out of this, you're out of show business. So I certainly didn't want to give up show business at this time. Uh, it was just, it was wonderful. We, I can remember that the people pleasing was, was, was so rough. I remember we made a trip over to Italy one time, and this entertainer that I was involved in got, got mixed up in the use of some controlled substances. As a matter of fact, he got out of prison not too long ago because of that. Uh, and I came back, and that's one thing, by the grace of God, I never got involved with. Um, but he asked me if I'd bring him something back when I came back over to Italy, because we were touring. And I said, sure. If it would make him happy, I'd do it. So I packed it in my little bag and went back to, to Venice, and I had been in and out of Venice many times and never saw what I saw that day when the plane landed. When the plane landed, we walked in the airport and it was pouring down rain. There were two Italian guards standing there with German shepherds on chains beside the baggage conveyor belt that was going down there. There was one other fellow on the plane that spoke English, and I said to him, what are those guys doing? He said, they're looking for dope. And they jerked those dogs, and they got up on that conveyor belt and started to work, walk it like a, uh, like a conveyor belt and a treadmill when it was coming in, sniffing the bags. And in came my bag. And I swear to God, that dog stopped on top of my bag, but he walked on over it. And I went and picked it up. And I made one of those, let's make a deal, prayers with God. You know, God, let me get out of this one. I won't ever, ever do this again. I don't think anybody probably has ever made those kind of deals, but... I used to make them all the time on a daily basis. And uh, I got that bag and hit it out of the airport, and they were waving everybody through. And, and, and this guard that spoke no English looked at me and held up his hands and stopped. And I had four bags, and he pointed to the one bag that had the stuff in it and patted the table and told me to put it up there. And I knew the jig was up. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I got a very—I I said a whole bunch of things in English that I hope he didn't understand, but I think he understood the look. He looked in the bag, looked back up at me, and said, "Go ahead." And I made that—that's one deal that I made. Let's make a deal that I never did again. You can bet on that. But that's the end of which my sickness was. That's the end of which my people-pleasing was at that time. It didn't make any difference. I knew what happened to people. I knew where they ended up. But if it was something that I could do to please somebody else, I'd buy into it. Gay, when we moved from Baltimore to Atlanta, uh, decided that she was going to go. She'd been out to Omaha to see her, her friend, and they talked about this group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Gay told you last night in her talk that, uh, that we are a little different, that I got to the program five years after she did. Actually, she was wrong. I want to set that straight. I did get to the program very closely after she did. I did not get in the program, but I got to it uh, and found out about it and had some knowledge of it. And, but I had some other things to accomplish. I realized that still I'm in my big people-pleasing mode this time. Gay begins to go to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I come home on the weekend. Something is going on different with her. Her dad now has come to live with us because her mom died. And um, she's not drinking, and he's drinking. And... Uh, Things are going worse with the job, and things now are, are, uh, are going worse with Gay and I because there's something different about her, and I don't know what it is. But I know one thing. It seems that she's ceased to care for me. <laughs> and, and, and she's not there waiting for me when I get home on Friday nights at 10.30 or 11 o'clock. She's off with these, these meetings. 
I had established a relationship with my father, and my father would come to see us. Now, my father was, and I told you we were either social drinkers or drunks in my family. My dad's a teetotaler. He's never had a drink of alcohol in his life. Says that probably he's frightened to do it because he's seen what happened to his father and his brothers, and he's just afraid to pick it up. But dad's feeling about alcohol and alcohol consumption was not one that was very good. So he came to visit us one night, and, and when we, we found out that he was coming to visit, we said, how would we tell him that you're an alcoholic synonymous, that you're a drunk? And we decided there was no way to tell him, so we wouldn't tell him. And he and I were watching television at one night at midnight. It was pouring rain outside. A phone call came in. Gay got up and got dressed and left. <laughs> now, what do, you, what, do you tell your, what do you tell your dad that your wife is getting up at midnight leaving for? She got a 12-step call, and I, I, so I explained to him. I said, Dad, Gay's an alcoholic synonymous. And he said, she is? And he said, I thought you were the one that had the big drinking problem. <laughs> you see, because I was one of those that during the drinking, in these weekends when I came home, in these partying times, I drank with Gay. I drank at her, with her, and around her. And you see, I firmly believe that, that um, I am one of those that, that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes as being a heavy drinker, giving the proper cause or reason to stop will do so. And I think that's, that's what happened with me. Uh, I'll tell you why I really believe it. Uh, Gay um, started to go to these meetings and suggested kind of strongly that I might want to go investigate Al-Anon. So I, I finally thought that would probably be a good idea. I'd run over to Al-Anon and see what's going on over there. And maybe it would make her life a little bit easier. And we could, she could get on with this program. We could get through it. And, and go back to, to living a life again, such as it was. I went into Al-Anon. There were about six or eight ladies in there. It was Stone Mountain, Glen Haven Stone Mountain group. And somebody said something prior to the, to the meeting about cleaning their house. And I told Gay after the meeting was over, I had nothing in common with those women. <laughs> and I wasn't going back, and I wasn't going to be a part of that group. And I didn't. That was my, that was my trip to Al-Anon. <laughs> However, I did start going to some open Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with Gay. If I was going to see her on the weekends when I came home, that's what I had to do because she went to her meetings. But things were changing with her, and I could sense it. I didn't know what it was. Uh, her dad died. Um, she didn't find it necessary to drink during that time. And there were a lot of alcoholics in our recovering alcoholics in our house during that period of time. And I began to go to the meetings. And, and back then, we did a lot of things that we did with couples. After the, after the meetings were over, we'd go to Denny's, and we'd sit and drink coffee, and we'd, we'd be there at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I got to know these people. You see, I started to drink with gay and around gay. And then when we started to sitting talking to these groups, they talked about the disease of alcoholism. And then once in a while, we'd get some newcomers that came in that wanted to talk about situations and being in jails and DUIs. And see, a lot of those things happened. I didn't, I didn't go to jail. I didn't get any DUIs. But a lot of the other things did. I got drunk. I passed out. I drank a lot. I threw up a lot. Um, the only difference is that alcohol wouldn't do for me what it did for gay. It did to me a lot of the same things. So when I began to share those things with people and uh, the amount of alcohol that I would drink and the situations that I used to be in, um, they kept telling me, you know, you, you, you're in the wrong room. You belong in the big room in there with, uh, with all, the, all the alcoholics. You're in the wrong place. You've got to realize that people-pleasing is a very strong part of my life. So I waited until the biggest birthday party that I had ever been to. It was in a church. A friend of ours was up there. 
Fresh on my mind was that advice that I belonged in the room with the big folks. So when they started giving out chips, I popped up and picked up a white chip. And everybody thought it was wonderful. And I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I want to tell you something. If you are, it works for you. If you ain't, it don't. And I wasn't, and it didn't. <laughs> and, but, I, but I tried. I tried for three, three now, three long years to become an alcoholic. <laughs> And somebody said to me one time, damn, you sure were sick. And I said, I'm not as sick as that guy that asked me to speak for his 15th AA birthday was. <laughs> and, and I did. Uh, I, I went up and spoke for his 15th birthday, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a living hell. It really, really is what it was, because there are no answers for me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The answers for me lie in the program of Al-Anon. That's where my answers are. Uh, my answers are in a group called uh, Steady as a Rock in Meach and Stone Mountain on Monday nights. That's my refuge. That's where my answers are. That's where I can go, and the people know what's going on with me without even having to ask me. That's, that's where my answers are. But I thought that I should be an Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was the people-pleasing thing to do, and I tried. So finally, one Friday night, and I, I, during this period of time, to some controlled drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would go over to Europe and I'd have some wine, I'd come home and I'd practice abstinence. And one Friday night I came home and Gay called me in the living room. She said, we need to talk. And she had that look on her face. I don't know some of you other guys and gals have seen that look on the mate's face. They ain't kidding. They're serious. And we sat down and she said, I have filed for divorce and I'm by the right of being sober for five years. I no longer am prepared to live this way. And I knew she was serious. I did what any other self-respecting guy would do. I cried, I begged, I groveled. None of it did any good because her mind was made up and it was all over. I went back to Augusta, worked, and I, so on Monday morning I just said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in and I'm going to give up that job and I'm going to go back and see if I can't change her mind. I did that for four or five weeks, still couldn't give up that job. And I was, one Friday afternoon I was driving down Broad Street in Augusta and I started feeling some numbness in my left side and my my head and my neck, and, and, and I got concerned, a heaviness in my chest, and I drove over to the hospital and I told the nurse, I, I, I've got some symptoms of what feels like a heart attack. And boy, they had me in the emergency room and they had me in intensive care. And, and I lay there in intensive care, and I've got to lie to you. I tell you, it did not occur to me that maybe this might change her mind, what's going on with me, you know, about this thing that I've got to do, because I've got to go in. I was supposed to go in the next day and sign the divorce papers. So after I got over the fear of, of, of dying that I thought I might be doing, uh, I had some time to lay there and think about this. And it took her a while to get down from Atlanta, and she came down with Lori. And there I was, hooked up to all these machines like a marionette, you know, laying in intensive care, and the monitor just going bleep, bleep, bleep. And I was really kind of looking forward to her coming in and, and, and being concerned and, and and she walked in the door and she put both hands on her hips. She said, I hope you don't think this changes my mind about what I plan to do. <laughs> and it didn't change her mind about what she had planned to do. But, you know, as she said last night, I think if we thoroughly have taken the third step, as we should, and we make a wrong decision and head in the wrong direction, then we're corrected. I had not taken that third step, but she had. I, this job was so reputable that I had that I didn't have any insurance. 
but she had the health insurance on the job that she worked for. And she said, if you will, you can come home and you can stay until that health insurance is settled, but then I want your tail and everything that belongs to you out of the house. And I said, fine enough. Came home, uh, but something had happened to me in the hospital. Something happened to me there that, that, uh, that I didn't have to go back to that job anymore. You see, I, that was my bottom in that hospital uh, in Augusta, Georgia. And I met me for the first time. Not for who I wanted to be, not for who I thought you wanted me to be, but for who I really was and what I was. And I didn't like it. And I didn't want any part of it. And I wanted to do something about changing. So when I came home, I was, I, was, I was honest about that feeling. And somebody told me the best thing you can do as far as gay is concerned, because I wanted to know what I could do to try to put this marriage together, and they said absolutely nothing. The only thing you can do is to give her her space to do what she needs to do for herself, and you need to put, start putting your life together, my friend. And it probably starts in Al-Anon, and that's where I started to go. And I went back into that same meeting room, and I didn't hear the conversation about cleaning the house. Uh, I didn't see six females. I saw six, seven Al-Anons, because that was part of my denial for a very long time. When I first started coming to Al-Anon, there were not a lot of men around, and it was difficult. I started going to Al-Anon, and, and, and it took 10 months to clear up the insurance, and we began to put a life together that we'd never had before. You know, some people talk about, you know, restoring their self-esteem. It was not, that was not the case for me, because I'd never really had that much self-esteem. It wasn't a matter of registration. It was a matter of building something that I'd never had before. And that's what I learned to do with the tools of Al-Anon. That's what I learned to, to do with the things that I found out in these rooms. And that's what I learned by taking your advice and following your directions. That learned to put my life together. Not a life back together, but one that I had never had before. Um, some of the things that, that, uh, that Gay talked to you about last night, her dad died. Um, later on, when, when I got involved in Al-Anon and came home, things started to, to really fall apart with the kids. and, and uh, it's been rough dealing with them. It hasn't been easy. And there's still some things going on. And as she told you last night, with uh, the current thing that we're dealing with, well, our oldest one is going through a divorce with two grandkids. And I'll tell you, Sarah Jane talked about it the other night, minding your own business. I tell you, it's one of the hardest things for me to do. It's so very hard because I want to I wanna just take them both and I want to go in and sit down and talk to them and I want to tell them, it, it can be worked out, and we, we can do these things. I want to do that, and it's hard not to. It's hard not to do it, and it's hard to mind your own business. But I find that strength, and I find it here in Al-Anon, and I find it from you, uh, learning to mind my own business. Uh, I talked this morning to our, our middle one on the telephone, and Lori uh, is the one that's got six or seven months now in the program of of AA. And, and Gay and I know and hope to the bottom of our heart that this is the one that works for her because I know that uh, I don't know how many more she's got. We don't know how many passes we have in or out. You know, sometimes it may be canceled when we go out and we always know that if she lived long enough she'd be back. And she's back and uh, by the grace of God we hope she stays here. Uh, we, uh, we brought a lot of sickness into this family. And now we bring some recovery into the family, and we get involved with, uh, with weekends like this and with kids who are involved in recovery. And 
one of the most horrendous things that I, I thought about Lori and, and myself this morning. I, this is a kid that I don't know where she got her stubbornness from. It was probably from her mother. But she, I used to chase her through the front yard. I would bring her in and try to discipline her and close her up in the house, and she'd jump out the back window, and I literally would chase her through the yards. Um, and, and, and she was she was one that had her own mind, and, and, and she has um, she suffered the, the results of this disease of alcoholism. Uh, as the rest of the members of the family have. But to see her back and to see her as a, as a chip-carrying member of Alcoholics Anonymous who is really in the program, uh, it's like seeing two different people. It's just like seeing two different people. She calls to see how gay and I were. She wanted to know how her mom did last night when she talked. She wished me well this morning. These are some of the gifts of the program. That father that I had no relationship with, I have one now. We get a chance to go out and, uh, and spend some time with him. And about a year ago, we got a call from uh, the doctor, Gay and I were down in Savannah. And uh, we were at a uh, AA conference. And they said, if you want to see your mother, you better come home and you better come fast because she's leaving. And uh, we got in the car, and I told Gay, I just hope she's there when I get there. And she was. And uh, I had a chance to go in the room and, and make those amends that I needed to make. Um, I'll report to you that Mother changed her mind. She decided not to leave. <laughs> she told the doctors that uh, after she came through, they took her out of intensive care they could, so we could, the family could visit, you know, because they thought she was gone. They'd written her off. And she looked at the doctor, and she said, you thought I was going to die, didn't you? And the doctor said, yes, ma'am, we did. She said, fools, you didn't die. And she's still hanging in there. I've left her heart. You know, this, this I am so grateful for because I know that this family has done, this mother and father did the very best they could for them. And Gay and I are so very grateful that because of the program of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, that we are able to contribute to the kids and maybe do something a little different that was done for us. And... Uh, for that, we're eternally, eternally grateful. We're grateful for the, for the weekend. You know, I, I don't think gratitude, the first West Georgia gratitude weekend, could have been any more fitting for the feelings that I have this Sunday morning because I am grateful. You know, and I didn't forget to get up this morning and look out the window and say thank you for the sunshine because I think you guys did a great job. You even changed the weather for us this weekend and got a nice, beautiful day. And for that, we're eternally grateful to each of you and for this weekend, and for the opportunity to be here and share with you. And to, the, to Alcoholics Anonymous and to Al-Anon, I say thank you for my life, because without you, I'm sure that I would not have one. Thank you very much, and I love each of you.